Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1. Let me do uh, one little housekeeping thing uh, again, because I, I don't remember if Jeremy said this or not, but we are having our benevolence offering this morning, and uh, if you would like to give to that, we will be collecting that at the same time that we collect our morning offering, and all you need to do is just write a big B on the front of that envelope that's around you, and that will get to the right place. So please don't forget to do that. Well, this morning we are going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're picking up where we left off in verses here in verse 21. We'll be going through verse 34 today. And as we think about what Mark has been teaching us, what we have seen through Mark's uh, gospel so far, there's a lot of things that hopefully you've been learning and you've been seeing in the text and that you maybe for the first time are seeing some things that's um, really hitting home at what what Christ has called us to do and what we should be doing as Christians. And so Mark is again going to give us some crucial information about how we should live, how we should think, and how we should view Jesus Christ. This morning's sermon is titled "Absolute Authority." Now, before we get into what the sermon is, I need to do just a little bit of background again to give you some more context to help you remember something about Mark's gospel. When Mark was writing this gospel, it's thought to be that he was in Rome, and he is, his actual name is John Mark. And while he was in Rome, the emperor of Rome at this time would be Nero. And probably a lot of you know, Nero was not a very good emperor in the sense of being very nice to people. Um, he, he liked to do terrible things like dip Christians in hot wax and then light them on fire in his gardens. So Nero is not the biggest fan of Christians. He actually blamed the burning of Rome upon Christians. And so probably about this time when Mark is starting to write this gospel, there's this wave of persecution starting to build and starting to come upon the church. And it seems to be this is one of the main reasons why Mark is writing this gospel message to get this out. Now, why is all this important to today's title, to today's message? Well, the Roman Empire, it seemed to be an unstoppable force. It seemed to, and it really did, control most of the known world at this time. And so whenever they think of, whenever we think of the Roman Empire, we think of this, this massive empire that had such power control for hundreds of years. But think of this in the realm of being a first century Jewish individual is that you would view them in a very maybe different way than maybe what you would think of them as you know, 2,000 years later. This force that was over the Jewish people, it acted as if it was an absolute authority, and this is kind of how they viewed the Roman Empire, was they are the absolute authority. They give direction, they give command, and we have to do whatever they tell us to do. And so most of the people, the Jewish people, they... They hated the Romans. They hated this oppressive state. There seemed to be no one that could go against them, that could fight against them, that could resist them. And we even see this historically with the Maccabean rebellion that takes place there with the Jews. The Jewish people, for the most part, a lot of them were expecting the Messiah to be somebody that was a military um, person that would bring victory over the Roman Empire. That they could conquer the Romans, free them from this oppression. This is what the Messiah is going to be. This is what they expected him to be. But as we will study in Mark's gospel, this is not exactly the kind of Messiah that Mark is talking about. 
Mark is definitely talking about the Messiah, because we've seen that already in the first 20 verses of chapter 1. He's definitely talking about who this Messiah is, and today we will see that he's getting at the point that this Messiah is the absolute authority beyond the Romans. The Romans thought themselves to be at the top of the world, and they, they were, but they did not understand whose world it was. Now, even if they had an authority to persecute the Christians, even had an authority to put them to death, Mark is writing a gospel for the people to hear and understand the Romans have nothing on the Messiah. They do not have any kind of authority compared to the Messiah. And he, this one that has come, as he has already explained to us, he is the ultimate authority And this is what our text is going to clearly show us this morning. Now, our text this morning is kind of broken into two parts because there's two stories, but they happen on the same day. And so we're going to try to do this in one day this morning. It's trying to cover both of these stories. So I hope you cleared your schedule this afternoon. So in verse 21 is where we pick up, and we're going to go through verse 28, and then we'll see the second story in 29 through 34. So look with me here in Mark chapter 1 and verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 21, please don't read that verse as just, oh, it's insignificant, it doesn't really matter. Again, this is building a backdrop for us to see who is Jesus. There's a couple things that are mentioned here in verse 21, the city of Capernaum. This city is significant not only because it is the place where Simon Peter lived, but also it was a strategic point on a road between Egypt and Mesopotamia. It was a main thoroughfare where people would constantly go through here. But also, the city of Capernaum seemed to be the city in which Jesus headquartered his ministry out of. Now, I don't think there was any skyscraper with Jesus' name on it saying that this is the headquarters of Jesus, because it seemed to be that Jesus was constantly in Peter's house, constantly with his disciples in the places where they lived. So the city of Capernaum, it is a crucial spot, a crucial place, and I think this is why Mark uses this as one of the first stories to talk about Jesus' ministry. Another thing that's there in verse 21, it says that this happened immediately. There's that word that Mark loves to say again and again. Immediately on the Sabbath. The Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest, but it was also a day of rules. Some of those rules were God-given, but a lot of them were man-made. Some of those rules included that you could only walk a certain distance from your property. So here's what clever people do, is that they go out to the very edge of their property, and they put a stake in the ground. They say, well, this is the edge of my property. Then they measure out how far they can walk. Clever, right? So, oh, okay, well, my property goes to that line. Well, I can walk so many feet away from that, and I'm not working on the Sabbath. And so these rules of the Sabbath... Some of them 
were really for rest, but a lot of them really just added more of a burden. Now, if you know anything about the Sabbath, it started on a Friday night, whenever the sun would go down, until a Saturday night, when the sun would go down on Saturday. So there's a a day of rest that should be there. And the people, what would they do on the Sabbath? Well, one thing that they would do, they would go to the local synagogue. And this is what it says in verse 21, that Jesus enters the synagogue. What is the synagogue? Well, it's like a church building. It's a place where people come and they gather, they want to hear the word of God, they listen to the teaching of God's word, and they would do this on the Sabbath day. They also did it on Mondays and on Thursdays as well. But the Sabbath day, it was a special day to listen to the teaching of God's word, and they, they loved to be together, and it acted also as a community hall of sorts to the community. It was a very important place to every single Jewish community. And it got its start whenever the exile into Babylon happened, whenever the temple was destroyed, these synagogues started to pop up. And this is the first evidence of synagogues is about that time period. And so whenever the the temple was rebuilt, these synagogues still played an important important part in every single one of the communities there in, in Israel. Because the people, they still wanted to hear the word of God. And so they would come, they would roll out the scroll, they would read from the law of God, and the rulers there in the synagogues, they would teach from God's word, and they would talk about the law specifically. Now, this synagogue, the synagogues that were there in these regions, they were in every single location. As long as there was 10 male Jewish individuals, there would be a synagogue in that place. So if you could imagine, all these little villages, all these little places, all these, if you will, churches that are there. And what is Jesus doing? He's entering these places and he's teaching. So here in verse 21, we see Jesus. He goes into the synagogue and what does he start doing? He starts teaching. Now, not just anybody could start teaching in the synagogue. You had to be approved. You had to be either a leader of the synagogue to teach or you'd have to be invited to teach. And it seems to be that Jesus was invited to teach. Now, I don't know if there was flyers that were passed out, like the Friday before, like, hey, Jesus from Nazareth is going to be here, this great teacher is going to be here, and people started to gather because of that, or if they were just doing this in their normal routine of things, not really expecting anything different than what they'd heard before, Saturday after Saturday. But when Jesus comes to the synagogue, he begins to teach. He must have a reputation of teaching already, because he's invited to do so. Now, once again, this is a very important point about Jesus' ministry. His ministry was not just about miracles. It was not just about healing people. It was about teaching. It was about the gospel. If you go back to verse 15 in chapter 1, this is what he was all about. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is a summary statement of Jesus' ministry, of what he was about. And whenever he came to the synagogue, this is what he preached. This idea right there. Maybe not those exact words, but that idea. So if you look at verse 22, in the response to the teaching of Jesus, what is it? Astonished. The people, they're astonished by what they're hearing. Now, I don't know what their expectation was when they came in. I don't know what your expectation was when you came in here today. Hopefully, you'll leave here astonished, not by what I say but you're astonished at how good Jesus is. I don't think these people were astonished because Jesus could tell a joke. I don't think they were astonished because Jesus could tell such a 
a heart-moving story that it could be on Hallmark or Lifetime. I don't think that was it at all. Why were these people astonished? Look at verse 22. What does it say? Because he taught them as one having authority. Why were they astonished at how Jesus taught? Was it because he gave such great parables? Because he was so funny or so clever or, you know, he always kind of jabbed at the Pharisees. That was not it. It's because the way he handled the law of God, the word of God. This is why they were astonished. In verse 22, it tells us that the scribes, they didn't hold a candle to Jesus. It says that their, their teaching was not even comparable to Jesus's. That when they heard the words of Jesus, they were shocked, amazed, astonished by what they were hearing. The scribes, these guys, they, all they could do was rest upon what they've been taught by other men. But this is not at all what Jesus does. We see this example in Luke chapter 2, where Jesus was a young boy, and his parents uh, might have lost him. And they, uh, they find him back in Jerusalem, where? In the temple. Look at what Luke chapter 2, verse 46 and 47 have to say about Jesus as a young boy. Look what happens. It says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Even at a young age, Jesus was astonishing people at how he thought and how he taught and the questions he would ask in relation to what? The law of God, the word of God. It seemed to be at this young age, Jesus was so able to to ask such great questions about the law of God. And this obviously hadn't changed much into being an adult in his teaching. People were astonished at how he thought of God's word. This is why they were amazed. It was how he thought about the word and talked about the word. It was the law that was important. This is what the people were holding on to, was every word of God's law and how Jesus handled it. Now, this... This instance doesn't really indicate much to us about Jesus being the ultimate authority or being an absolute authority. No, it really doesn't indicate that at all. All this shows us is that people were amazed at how well he could handle the law. All this really shows us is that Jesus was just better than the synagogue teachers. He was just better than even the best of the best in Jerusalem when he was a boy. This is all this is showing us. So this really doesn't indicate that Jesus is the Messiah just because he can talk about the law of God really well. Well, as a skeptic, you might say, well, see, maybe Jesus was just some sort of savant with God's law, and he really wasn't the Messiah. He really wasn't God in the flesh like Mark is claiming him to be. Maybe. If you stop there. But we have the rest of the story, don't we? As Paul Harvey would say, we have the rest of the story In verses 23 through 26, what happens in this passage? We have a very strange thing that happens, don't we? Very unusual thing that takes place while Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. They were amazed at how he handled the truth of God's word, how he handled the law, and then all of a sudden, the whole atmosphere changes. What takes place? 
There was a man in the place that was possessed with an unclean spirit. Now, the New Testament uses this, this phrase, unclean spirit and demon, interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Mark does this uh, also in his gospel. Eleven times he mentions this term, unclean spirit. Thirteen times he mentions the term demons. And these are kind of used interchangeably in his gospel. Now, there's a couple of very interesting things that happen in this story of 23 through 26. The first thing that happens is the man, the man in the synagogue. This is very unusual, very strange, because this was a place of worship. This was a place where people would hear the law of God, would hear the teaching of God's word. But here's this guy that is completely, totally unclean, but he's here. Now, we really don't think probably a lot about this in our American Western culture, our Christian American culture. I think most of the time we, we come to church and we interact with people and we say, oh, well, I go to that church and, well, I go to this church and, yeah, you know, I, I enjoy that. And we talk about God in generic terms. And we just assume that people are Christians because, well, I see them every week. I've heard them say things in Sunday school class about God kind of in general or generically. And they must be a Christian. We probably just assume this that they're saved. We probably just assume that, oh, they're okay with God. They must be right with God. Well, you know, we saw them get baptized. Or we've, we've seen them in this church for a long time. They've been, they've been a member here forever. We think these kind of a thought, these kinds of thoughts, and I think all those are just dangerous assumptions. Dangerously thinking that the person sitting next to you is saved. But maybe they're not. I think it's also a dangerous assumption to think that Every preacher or teacher that you hear or that you meet is a Christian. When I think there's plenty of evidence to show that they're they're not. This is the issue with this man in the synagogue. That he was there. He was just another one of the faces. It doesn't seem like there's any other indication that he was out of place until all of a sudden this one moment happens. And maybe these people had went to synagogue with him every week. And then all of a sudden when Jesus shows up, everything starts to change. Please, please do not have a wrong assumption that everybody that you talk to that claims to be a Christian is one. Don't be deceived by this. And we have this here in the story. A second thing that we see is that this demon that this man has, it, it cries out in verse 24. And what does it say? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This unclean spirit, it gives a testimony of Jesus. This is, this is unusual. These other people, his disciples that are even now following him, they, they don't understand this yet. We see this even farther on to the, to the story of Jesus, that they don't understand who he really is. Now, the first claim in which this demon has is Jesus of Nazareth. Well, yeah, we know he's from Nazareth, and nobody would be you know, questioning or, or, or debating that fact. But whenever the demon says, the Holy One of God, he stepped over a line into a different realm of thinking about who is this Jesus. The Spirit, it recognizes Jesus for who he really is, what his real identity is. His own disciples, they struggled to do this. And even... Even throughout his whole life, even on the cross, people are struggling to recognize who is he until if you 
remember, as Jesus died, he gave up his last breath. Who's the first person to recognize that he is the Son of God? A Roman soldier. Jesus is no mere human. That is what this demon is saying. He is no mere human. Now, this should help us answer the question about, well, why was Jesus so good at handling the law of God? Probably because he was God. Probably because he was God in the flesh. He's the Holy One of God. He is what Mark has been trying to tell us already in the first 20 verses. He is God in the flesh. He is no mere human. He is not just man. The third thing that we see in this story is that Jesus' response to the Spirit, it is unusual as well. Jesus, in verse 25, he rebukes the Spirit. Look at what it says. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Notice that Jesus commands the unclean spirit to come out of the man. He doesn't give some ritual practice. He doesn't break out his his mikvah water or his holy water and hit the guy in the face with it. He doesn't have some incantation over the guy or some spell that he cast. What does Jesus do? He commands it. Notice also that Jesus does not offer salvation to the demon. Notice also that Jesus does not preach at the demon. He doesn't offer love. He doesn't offer grace. He doesn't offer mercy. He responds very differently to the demon than he does with people. He only commands it, and what does it do? It leaves. Why is this a response? Well, if you remember verse 24, it says that one of the questions that was asked of Jesus by the demon was, Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? What is the the demon asking? This is such a strange question. If this was just a man talking, that's really odd. But now this demon is saying, have you come to destroy us? The demon understood something. He understood what God was going to do, what had been promised back in Genesis 3.15. And he asked Jesus the question, have you come to destroy us? Have you come to punish us for our wickedness? Have you come to take care of what, you have, what God had promised to do? Jesus is the one that held this kind of authority to bring the punishment. This is why the question is asked of Jesus, and this is why the demon responds like this in verse 26. Have you come to destroy us? Now, there's a couple of things here in this demon responding. That this convulsion and this crying out, this is evidence that something supernatural was happening. Again, this guy was probably just another person in the congregation in in the, in the crowd, but all of a sudden, it seems to be there's something radically different about him. And this crying out, this convulsing is evidence that something supernatural had happened. And this is not unusual to the New Testament and what's told about the exorcism of demons from people. And I think this is, again, pointing to the fact that there's something bigger, something unseen that's taking place. And it responds to the authority of Jesus saying, come out. Now, if you notice in this story, notice one key thing. The demons, they don't attack. The demons don't attack. Who is on the attack? You can answer. Jesus. 
Jesus is the one that is on the attack. This is not unusual to what we hear even from Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he tells Peter this. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Think about that for a moment. What are gates used for? In this context, defense. They're used for defense, to keep people out. It is used to to, to keep things safe inside. And what is Jesus saying about those gates? They shall not prevail against what? Go ahead, read the verse. What does it say? The church. It, it means the church. That's who he's talking about. It shall not prevail against the church. Church, understand that you serve a king that is on the offensive. You are part of a kingdom that is not on the defense. Why is it that we cower and we buckle every time we hear about evil and wickedness and we start to panic and worry about things that are happening in our world? The devil's really good at deceiving us, isn't he? He has convinced us as Christians that we're losing. He has convinced us that we are on the defense and he's on the offense when the Bible tells us it's exactly the opposite of this. Church, the kingdom is advancing and we are winning. We are not losing. I don't care what you keep hearing on the news about how bad things are. I know I know that it sounds so dark and, and so demonic, and we're like, oh, how, can anything, how can anything get better? Understand that Jesus has promised something in Matthew 16, 18. The gates, they will not prevail. They will not hold us back. We need to understand that we are on the winning side. We shouldn't quake or shake about what's happening, but we should be ready and moving toward our victory. We serve an absolute authority. We are winning. James talks about the same kind of thing, the same kind of idea in James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There's two things here in James I want you to understand. The first of all is going back to this man in the synagogue. He says... Do you believe that God is one? That's great. This guy in the synagogue, he believed in God. The demon believed in God. But what does his belief in God get him? Let me ask you this question. Does your belief in God only get you to the place in which you are the equivalent of a demon? That your belief in God still falls short of righteousness? The demon had belief in God. The demon was not offered any kind of salvation. Your belief in God must be more than just a belief in generic terms. It must be specific into who Jesus is. And this is what we've already talked about in Mark chapter 1. The second thing that James is getting at is this idea of the demon being scared. It shudders. It trembles. Why? Because it knows who God is. It understands who he is. And is terrified of this. Because he knows he's losing. And this is what verse 24 helps us understand. Have you come to destroy us, Jesus? 
Now, in all of this, what's happening here, this is a foreshadowing of what the Son of God is going to do for sinful humanity. He's going to restore the image bearers of God. He's going to cast out the unclean. He's going to make them new. He's going to transform them out of the wretched sinners that they are into a holy people of God. This is the only possible this is only possible through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. This is the good news. This is the gospel that we preach to the world and it's by this good news that we preach it and we keep on winning. If you're distraught about the world in which you live in, the community in which you live in, what is your, what is your offense against that? Preach the gospel. Teach the gospel. Point people to Jesus Christ. This is how we keep on winning. Now, the response of the people in verses 27 through 28, it shows us that the people thought Jesus to have an authority because of his teaching ability, but now... What do they think about his authority? They think his authority is out of this world. It's not just based upon human knowledge and wisdom. It's based upon something completely different. He has a completely different authority than what they ever imagined. They were amazed. They began to see the world in a completely different light. They were dumbfounded with this question. They asked, what is this? Have you ever had a moment like that? Maybe something happened in your life and you're like, what, what is this? Maybe you heard somebody teach for the first time something that you didn't understand from the Bible or something. You're like, what is this? These people were amazed at what they just witnessed in front of them. This this man crying out, convulsing, this demon leaves him. The response was what? It was to run home. Well, it was the Sabbath, so they probably walked home. And so they, they go home and they tell everybody. And we see that in verse 28, that All this fame of Jesus is spread because of what had happened here. And this brings us to the second story that we have in verse 29. It shows us us what other authority that Jesus has. Look at verse 29 through 34. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, after all the amazement that had happened in the synagogue, Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house. And what does he discover in Simon Peter's house? That Simon Peter's mother-in-law is deathly ill. We get the sense that this fever in which he had, it was not just kind of a a low-grade fever, just barely above 98.6. It seemed to be that she was laid up in bed and unable to do anything, and it seems to be from how they tell Jesus that there's an immediate need that needs to happen, that it's urgent. And so, what does Jesus do? Verse 31 And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Notice what Jesus says. Nothing. Notice what Jesus prays. Nothing. I know that might challenge your thinking about, well, what do I do when somebody's sick? Well, Jesus doesn't even pray. Now, again, you're not Jesus, so you should pray. So, 
what does Jesus do? He comes in. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't pray over her. He doesn't do anything special, kind of like the synagogue situation, other than just commanding. What does he do? It says he grabs her hand and lifts her up. He lifted her up. Now that phrase, lifted up, in English we're like, oh, okay, he just helped her up out of the bed. That is what it means in the Greek, but it means more than that as well. That same word that is used to say lift up or to cause to rise, like rising up out of a bed, that same word is also used in referring to those people that are being caused to rise from the dead. That same Greek word is used in, that same, in a different sense. Simon's mother-in-law, she was sick. And her sickness was part of the plan. Don't think that anything that you read in this book is all just coincidental. They're all just coincidences that are happening and Jesus just happens to show up and he happens to do something. No, none of that is true. Jesus shows up on purpose with a plan and all of these sicknesses are part of the plan. Her illness is serving the purpose of foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do for future people. That he is going to rise them from the dead. That he is going to cause them to raise from the dead. He is going to cause them to be born again. He will be the one that will take these lifeless people that are dead to God and give them life. This is what Jesus is foreshadowing with this one woman's illness. And these few words lifted her up. Her illness. Her illness was physical, but it is painting a spiritual picture for us. If we will repent of our sins and we will trust in the righteousness of God, we will be healed. We will be raised up from our dead state. It's by the power of Jesus that this happens. It's not our own. Notice the response of this mother-in-law. I wish she had a name other than just calling her mother-in-law because that has a kind of a negative connotation in our culture. Let's call her Eunice, okay? Sounds like a good mother-in-law name. So Eunice is, is risen from her bed. What is her immediate response? She serves. She serves. Now, I don't think it's like, well, you know, i got a bunch of dishes I need to wash. I don't think that's it. I think what happens here is what should happen in our life as we have been raised up from our dead state that we have an immediate response to the one that has healed us. And what is it? To serve to love him, to serve him out of gratitude, out of love of what has taken place in us. This is her response. Shouldn't this be our response to our Savior, to our healer? In verses 32 through 34, there's kind of a summary that's given of of really what this whole day included. There was probably way too much to talk about because the whole city was outside the, the, the door of this house. I can't even imagine what that even looked like. And what does Jesus do? He, he heals people. He casts out demons. These people were there to, to get something from Jesus, and he, he gives it to them. It tells us that he healed many different diseases. It's not just a fever. It's not that he just had an authority over fevers. Like, well, you know, he's the fever healer. You go to him and he'll heal you of the fever. No, he's, he is the healer of all of these diseases. He is the one that casts out many demons. We see that Jesus is truly the absolute authority over the spiritual realm. And now with Eunice, 
that it's over the physical realm of things. Both of these are now true. So there's kind of three things that are happening in this story. Is that Jesus is seen to have an absolute authority with the law of God, the truth of God's word, but also in the spiritual realm, the supernatural realm, and also an absolute authority in the physical realm. What can we say about this Jesus? He is the absolute authority. What is untouched by him? There's one last thing that I want you to see as we close this morning in verse 34. Look there again. The way it ends. It ends with, And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Why would Jesus keep them silent? Why would Jesus do this? Now, there's, there's a lot of reasons why we don't have time for all of those. So let me just give you one reason. Jesus was keeping them silent for his purpose, for his reason, because it wasn't the right time. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, you see this repeated over and over again. It wasn't his time, it wasn't his time, it wasn't his time. Jesus keeps them silent because it wasn't his time. There were things that needed to be done. There was teaching that needed to happen. There was preparations that had to take place. There was a certain time in which all of this was playing out for. It was for his crucifixion. The last point that I want to make with this, this idea of that they knew him in verse 34, is, this, is a couple questions. Why aren't demons saved? Why isn't there an offer of grace? Why isn't there an offer of love to them? They know Jesus. Isn't this how people are saved? Because they know Jesus. There's a difference, isn't there? Like what James says in James 2.19, Oh, you know God, but so do the demons. You know Jesus, so do the demons. Is it just knowledge that we have to have in order for us to be saved? Is that all that people need? Is just some knowledge about Jesus? That we can go out of Sunday school class, we can leave this place here this morning and say, you know what, I know some things about Jesus now, I must be saved. That is not true. You must be changed, transformed in your soul. It is not a matter of just having some ideas about God. It's being changed. Have you been changed by God? Do you know him? Do you know him? The believer is transformed by God's grace. That's a completely different response to who he is. We're not just lackadaisical about our service or about how we think about him. We are changed. Have you been changed by God? Do you have new desires? Do you have a hatred for sin? Or do you have a hatred for God? If Jesus is the absolute authority in the realm of truth, if he is the absolute authority in the realm of of the physical world, if he's the absolute authority in the supernatural realm, is he the absolute authority in your life? That is the question which rests upon us this morning. And the question is, friend, have you been changed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin? Have you trusted in who he is? Not just knowing some things about him, but trusting in the transformation that he brings the worship band is going to come. We're going to have a time of response. 
And whatever the Spirit of God is laying upon you, please respond to that. He is the absolute authority. He's over all things. There's nothing that escapes Him. Why not trust Him today? You're commanded to trust Him today in turning from your sin and trusting in His righteousness. Would you do that today? Christian, also, don't leave this place as a defeated individual. Your king is alive. Your king is ruling. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. Leave here encouraged. Let's pray. Father, God, you've you have given us your son. Why would we think you were withholding anything else from us? The most valuable and precious thing in all of the universe was given to us. He has proven himself to be the absolute authority over all things. God, let us trust him. Not just knowing some things about him, but trusting him. God, change us this morning. Change the way that we think. Change the way that we we look at uh, this, this wretched world. Let's not be intimidated by the enemy. But let us charge ahead because our king is alive and he reigns. Lord, encourage us this morning. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.